0: When it comes to food security, tackling the issue with food alone is not the answer. Dismantling the entrenched beliefs and systems that lead to the insecurity is a way better solution that cuts to the heart of the issue rather than offer band-aid solutions with short-term results. It's an opinion that one changemaker has been asserting for years. And we'll be speaking with him next. Welcome to In the Business of Change, where we speak with social entrepreneurs impacting their communities and the world. I'm your host, Elisa Birnbaum, publisher and editor in chief of Sea Change magazine. On today's podcast, we speak with anti poverty and food security advocate Paul Taylor, who also happens to be the executive director of FoodShare, one of Canada's largest food security organizations. In our conversation, Paul discusses the ways in which food share has stepped up during the pandemic, and the folks on the ground making it happen. He then shares how growing up materially poor has not only impacted his chosen career, but his very approach to tackling food security. It's about upholding income equality and human rights, he says, before offering some hopeful thoughts for the future.
1: You know, my upbringing has absolutely informed who I am today. You know, there's a there's a straight line, actually. You know, some of my early childhood experiences, you know, growing up in downtown Toronto or the west end of Toronto, as a poor kid raised by a single mom, you know, we had lots of struggles, whether it was times where we didn't have a lot of food, um, you know, no heat, no electricity, no hot water, and also trying to navigate the shame that I think as a society we bestow upon people who are materially poor all of those things you know had a profound impact on me and it actually wasn't until i was 13 years old when i started to think a little bit differently about what was happening for my family you know before that i had thought we did something wrong my mother wasn't doing something right i had done something wrong and then i heard about this premier that was elected uh, a fellow named Mike Harris who was you know, my mother was very nervous about, and one of the first things he did was cut welfare. And it's at that point, you know, he cut welfare by twenty-two percent, and I realized pretty much at that point that there, were these, the, 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 things that my family navigated were as a result of clear political choices, and, and most importantly, uh, it didn't have to be that way.
2: So now, tell us about food share. Where we're, we're going to jump jump to this period of time, but I'm sure who you are and your background and all that kind of history is, is certainly going to weave, weave its way through a lot of these answers, right, uh, in one way or another.
1: For sure. So uh, in April of 2021, I would have been at FoodShare for four years, which has just flown by. And I would say the the love affair with FoodShare started... Um, when I read four words uh, on the FoodShare website, and it was, you know, food is a right. And it had been such a part of the way that I thought about food, the way that I understood food, and, and the way I advocated for us all to have food, you know. So food share absolutely centers and understands that everyone in this country has a right to food, everyone in this country and beyond. So, what FoodShare does is advocates for food justice by supporting community based initiatives, uh, through, whether it's through ongoing advocacy, public education, or supporting community based programs. And ultimately, we have a vision where all people can feed themselves, their loved ones, and their communities, you know, with dignity and joy. Our initiatives range from, you know, urban farms to affordable produce markets, to community kitchens and through, you know, the collection of all of those things that we do, we reach uh, over a quarter million people across Toronto through food and food-based initiatives each year. And maybe the last thing I'll add, is that we also operate a social enterprise, so a business that generates uh, revenue to support our work. We know you're very familiar with those. Yeah. Um, and ours is one of ours is called the Good Food Box, which is um, you know you can find details of that at goodfoodbox.foodshare.net, and it's a place where folks can jump online and if they live in Toronto and buy a beautiful box of fresh fresh produce that uh, lands right at their doorstep.
2: And I'm going to ask you a little bit about that social entrepreneurial approach in a second. I just wanted to touch upon one other thing in terms of the pandemic and how FoodShare has been stepping up. Anything that you've been doing that you want to mention that have um, it's been a difficult time, obviously, for everyone in terms of getting healthy food? Um, And uh, is there anything specific that FoodShare has done to help uh, alleviate those challenges?
1: for sure so you know from the start of the pandemic you know recognizing that food share had you know a bunch of vehicles uh, traversing the city uh, delivering food to folks at the same time that we're hearing reports that something close to 40% of food banks were having to close as a result of you know an inability to operate during the pandemic. So we said, oh my goodness, this is the, the crisis that is food insecurity in the city is gonna just be even worse. So we took a look at our capacity and said, well, we've got these vehicles, why don't we raise some money and why don't we start delivering the same good food boxes that we deliver to folks that pay for them to folks for free that need them. So we launched what we call the emergency good food box. So it's the exact same produce box. Um, And what we did to animate it is we partnered with 80 grassroots groups, grassroots groups and organizations across the city. And we would send, you know, these same, like I say, large boxes of beautiful fresh produce right to the doors of households facing food insecurity. And these partnerships that we forged were with grassroots groups working with, you know, survival sex workers, undocumented workers, um, BIPOC serving organizations, student groups, Black liberation groups. You know, really getting, um, making sure that our support is getting to the folks that we know are most affected by the issue of food insecurity and that we thought, and and rightly so, were going to be most affected by by the pandemic. So maybe, and then, you know, we're super pleased. We wish we didn't have to do this, but so far, you know, thanks to our incredible essential workers, we've been able to distribute over a million pounds of produce to folks in every corner of uh, the city of Toronto.
2: That's amazing. Can you keep that going, though, as the pandemic continues on? It's a hard thing to
1: definitely and we we've decided that yeah we're going to keep going uh, for as long as we can because we recognize there's so much uncertainty connected with this pandemic so we've continued to raise money and continue to partner with um, we've focused in on a smaller number of groups again working with the folks that we know are, are um, you know most have been made most vulnerable by our systems uh, in this city and in this country so you know continuing to do that and we've had some really generous donors step up to say you know we we know that um, this is a, a, an issue that isn't going away right away so we've got to continue to be there for folks uh, who are really struggling right now
2: that's amazing truly um, congratulations on that work and 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 uh, on the success of that and, and you it's been incredibly challenging for many people so the fact that so many of you are are um, so many of, of wonderful organizations are st- are standing up and and uh, doing what they can and doing a lot um, mm-hmm. is is incredibly impressive and wonderful the city of toronto thanks you for that i'm sure thank Um, you i have
1: to just i have to give you know i appreciate the thanks but you know i am not um the i'm not one of the folks that's going out and taking risk uh every single day so i just have such deep appreciation and gratitude and respect from my colleagues, our essential colleagues, that are out taking risks so that we can all eat, whether you're buying the good food box or receiving it in your time of need. You know, they are truly incredible human beings that I'm really fortunate to work alongside.
2: Absolutely, I'm glad you mentioned that. Um, we need to thank them more often, the frontline people mm-hmm. on the front line, right? Um, now, sort of going back a question, but I, I wanted to touch upon um, the element of, of social enterprise and food share and, and what you believe um, in terms of you know, why introduce uh, a social enterprise? You guys are doing great work with other initiatives and charities doing great work. Um, what is it about a social enterprise that you feel is, is well-equipped to um, maybe better than a charity at certain points? Perhaps you can let us know what, what a social enterprise, when it is better equipped to make a difference, and why introduce it into food share.
1: Okay, so I'll give, I'll give I, guess, I guess two things come to mind when I think of that question. And the first is that, you know, charity, uh, is largely dependent on other people's donations. So, the priorities of uh, some of the most affluent folks in our city, the priorities of some of our largest corporations in the city, you know, certainly, you know, the, actually, Food Share, we're really pleased that we get, you know, a big chunk of our, our, our revenue from, you know, everyday folks contributing five, ten, twenty dollars or signing up to be monthly donors. But ultimately, when we look at uh, the charity sector, the bulk of the dollars aggregately come from Um, These folks who may not have the same goals, hopes, uh, and motivations that we do. So one of the things that's been beneficial to us is being able to have derive revenue that allows us to respond to emergent issues without having to convince uh donors that they are important and emergent issues. So things like, you know, an early commitment to really look at what's going on around anti-black racism and how it intersects with food insecurity in this country you know and and committing to food justice i remember days where i had conversations with folks saying you know as i speak to my colleagues this is unequivocally where the energy exists and people would say to me there's no money in that you know so it allows us to not really be be guided solely by the priorities of other folks that may not get the issues in the same way and also you know when we think about food insecurity I'll probably talk about this a little bit more later on, but it's an issue of income. So one of the best things we can do is we can create decent work for folks. So you know, again, when we have funders that don't get that and aren't willing to provide uh, the types of support that allow us to create decent work, it's through having some flexibility with the revenue that we bring in from our social enterprise activity and the like. So you know um, we've been able in the, you know talking speaking of the pandemic we've been able since march 2020 to be able to pay all of our essential workers a, a 4% of uh, sorry 4 dollar an hour increase uh that we have not discontinued um, you know people have been able to rely on it because the 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 crisis is still uh, before us so you know, I know lots of organizations that had funders, whether it was provincial government or what have you, that's that rolled up that emergency uh, top-up uh, pandemic top-up. And we said no, that's not acceptable. We won't be doing that. The risk is still uh, pretty significant. I mean, not to mention, yeah, paid sick days and all of those types of yeah. things that uh, we need to be able to providing. We need to be able to provide so that we're not just treating we're not just calling our workers essential workers, but we're actually treating them as such as well.
2: That's great. That's um, uh, that's in- incredibly impressive because you know a lot of, like you mentioned, a lot of folks cannot do that. A lot of uh, organizations, companies are no longer able to maintain that.
1: You, know what, you remind me of one thing that I feel yeah. like I would be remiss not to mention Say it. because I originally you yeah. asked me about, you know, who's, who's better equipped to tackle yeah. food insecurity. Well, it's neither social enterprise nor is it charity. The government, our governments at every level, especially the provincial and federal governments, are truly best equipped uh, to address food insecurity because it's not an issue for charity. You know, the scale of the problem, where where in this country we have over 5 million people that are food insecure, means that we're not gonna solve this issue through pantry leftovers of of, uh, Kraft dinner and cranberry sauce or three-legged carrots or corporate waste. You know, uh, I think there are two things that are important here. One, that we have a right to food in this country, you know, and we have had a right to food in this country since 1976 when our, our government ratified our right to food. And two, I think the other important consideration is that we have more than enough food and money in this country to make sure that everyone has can access the food that they need. I think the big issue here is that we don't have effective government policy to ensure that the right to food is protected. So if we had things like effective taxation, so that the richest people among us, you know, would be paying their fair share, and so that the poorest among us can also access the things that they need to survive.
2: Well, it's, it's, which, it's
1: a policy issue,
2: It's a yeah. which brings me to the next question. Um, you've been speaking a lot about you've been pretty outspoken, vocal about the need to address the root causes of food security um, and policy by implementing policy and focus on income equality. And we can also get into um, systemic racism and how that I can bring those two questions together, because I was going to ask you one at a time. But I think it's all sort of comes into. Well, you tell me, <laughs> how do you best tackle it? And if, if it's policy, um, what type of policy would you imagine um, it would? You know, what type of policy would you uh, look to the government um, to impose and about? And, and Great,
1: Great question. So going back to what I said earlier, you know, food insecurity is about income. What I hear more often than not, what my colleagues are hearing more often than not, is that people don't have enough money for food because they're paying too much for housing, for transportation, for medication, for their education, for childcare. So I think what we need is a framework that tackles, you know, poverty and food insecurity through things like building housing that's truly affordable for folks, making medication accessible to all through things like pharmacare, you know, advancing uh, uh, free tuition and free transit, you know, I think in one of the richest countries of the world, surely we should be able to be leaders in protecting, you know, these fundamental human rights like housing and food. And I think that's what it comes down to. So to really address food insecurity, I think we need a lens that is um around the protection of human rights, not handouts not um, all that nonsense that we've allowed to distract us for far too long. We've got to say if we truly want to be leaders on, a, on, on championing human rights, well, then let's look at a framework that actually does that. We'd be talking about things like a guaranteed livable income. We'd be talking about all of those things like pharmacare and a national child care program. That's going to put more food on people's plates than uh, any charitable
2: program ever would. And does that bring you back in a sense to your your upbringing your background does that do you feel you know the the parallels in terms oh, of your yeah. life and
1: Housing. Oh, for sure, yeah, absolutely. When I think about the things that we struggled with the most, the costs of housing, all of those pieces—that's what took food out of our fridge. That's what made my mother more stressed. That's what made me feel more ashamed of our poverty. You know, it wasn't that we didn't have—we weren't um, desperate for someone's leftover craft dinner. That's not what we were really screaming for. But that's—that's that's what seemed to be omnipresent: tins of tuna, craft dinner. You know, those sorts of things when we could get them. I shouldn't say omnipresent when we could get them because of course you know food banks do run out Um, and you you mentioned earlier kind of the connection to kind of tackling
2: racism yeah I was going to get to that next yeah you speak a lot about the relation between race and food security so how will tackling uh, systemic racism impact food security food insecurity
1: Yeah, well, it's really simple, you know, Uh, FoodShare was a part of some research that we've been, uh, you know, sharing with the world. We partnered with Proof out of the University of Toronto, um, and one of the things we learned is that black Canadians are three and a half times more likely to be food insecure than white Canadians. It didn't matter, you know, and some of the typical things that we understood about food insecurity, you know, um, went out the window when it came to these stats, it didn't matter if a black Canadian lived in a single parent household, dual parent household, didn't matter how long uh, a black household, um, you know, whether or not folks, sorry, how long folks had lived in the country or not, it didn't matter. um, Housing even, owning your own home uh, didn't act as the same protection uh, against food insecurity that it did for white folks. So simply, what we were able to prove and deduce is that one of the drivers to food insecurity in this country is anti-black racism. You know, systems that actually perpet- cause and perpetuate all kinds of inequities, uh, including uh, when it comes to access to food. So one of the first things we could do to challenge food insecurity, and again, will have much more impact then some of the things we've been conditioned to think are what we need to be doing. You know, if we start seriously tackling anti-black racism, anti-indigeneity, ableism, you know, and looking at advancing a human rights framework, my goodness, we could actually be leading, we could be eradicating homelessness, we could be eradicating hunger, poverty, all of those kind of big issues, challenging the housing crisis, Um, but we we just don't seem willing to do that.
2: Uh, Yeah, um, I don't want to leave it on that note. Is there, is there any initiatives or, um, hopeful initiatives that, that Future or you are looking forward to implementing any, any discussions that you're having, anything you want to talk about that is can leave us mm-hmm. with a more hopeful note. Cause that sounds like, you know, there's a lot of work ahead and, and, and there should be. And so, you know, it's not that we're going to put a rosy picture on something that needs a lot mm-hmm. of work, but how would you, um, sort of, yeah. what hopeful tone do you do you have and you the work that you're doing is is amazing so maybe that's part of it but yes. anything that you want to you know discuss
1: what what gives me hope is that um, you know i think that one of the things you know i think i hope i oscillate between the two i hope that the pandemic has really caused us to recognize that what we were doing before you know, the kind of bl- blind, kind of bowing to neoliberalism, um, uh, you know, and and, and government inaction in these areas isn't working, isn't serving all of us. I, you know, I think, yeah, the fact that we have this many people that are hungry uh, is, is a policy issue in the same way that we have, you know, 45 or so billionaires is also a policy a failure. So I think we're starting to have that conversation collectively, and I truly hope that we are able to collectively put more pressure on our elected officials and on governments to say you know what Canada can lead in this in this world we, we act. it is possible it is within reach and my hope is that this is the this is the time that we uh, accept nothing but
2: thank you i hope you're right <laughs> oh thank you I, I really hope so appreciate too. it i know I just I couldn't let you end on that note. This is the this is the note that we we have to embrace. That we just have to. Um, and truly, uh, there's so many people that are giving us that hope, and that, including you and I, and the people in the front line right now. So I'd like to hold on to it. Uh, let's hold on to that together. So that's that. <laughs> that's good. Uh,
1: yes, I agree. I agree. We can do better, and uh, you know, I hope collectively we do. Yeah, I hope so too
2: um thank you so so much thank
1: you so much for having me you know it's been a real pleasure i really appreciate you uh, making the time for you know conversations like this uh and and sharing your platform to advocate for a conversation like this so thank you so much for welcoming me here today thank you for listening
0: to in the business of change be sure to subscribe to our podcast to hear other conversations with inspired social entrepreneurs and change makers working on challenges in their communities and across the globe I'm your host, Elisa Beardbaugh.